Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. For those of you who haven't come across us before, we're a design-led estate agency. In this podcast series, I'm talking to people we admire and asking them to pick their three favourite homes from anywhere in the world. We're aiming to show how a well-designed home can enhance your life and ultimately make you happier. My guest today is the architectural designer, Jonathan Tucky. I've known Jonathan for a few years now, and he designed an extension to my own house, so I've got first-hand experience of working with him. In my very humble opinion, he's one of the most gifted designers currently working in London, and I can vouch for the fact that he's a really good guy too. Good to have you here. Thank you, Matt. At The Modern House, we've sold quite a few of your projects over the years, and one that sticks in mind particularly is Providence Chapel in Wiltshire which is one of my favourite projects, actually. It's a 19th century chapel, and you added a fantastic blackened timber extension to it. And we got a huge amount of interest in it from buyers. We sold it way over the asking price. But, you know, there were quite a few of your projects, I think, that we've sold over the last few years. And I think we've got good proof that your design adds monetary value. But today I'd really like to talk to you about how you feel your design adds emotional value. And the reason I particularly wanted to talk to you for this podcast series is I think you really understand the human aspect of design. So the idea of usability, atmosphere, texture, um, and to me, you're the absolute opposite of a corporate architect designing those kind of you know fully glazed ziggurats in the city. Um, so I'd love to start by talking about your academic background because you're not actually a trained architect. You studied social anthropology, which I think is really interesting. So I'd love to hear about that and how you feel it's influenced your work. You're right. I didn't train as an architect. My interest was in anthropology, and by studying that, I realised what I was actually doing was enjoying observing people and the places that they lived in or the environments or communities they lived in and seeing those atmospheres that they had created and and watching how those atmospheres might change as a community evolved. 
it felt to me at the end of that degree that my opportunities in a career of anthropology were relatively limited, but that the thing I'd got out of it was that observation of spaces and that enjoyment of observing how a space is made and what makes a space successful. And it was then through an interior design degree at Kingston that that kind of galvanised my thoughts. It felt like an immediate fit, the relationship between anthropology and architecture, one that was rarely described and obvious in books as a journey into it, but it still makes a lot of sense when I visit a place and people ask me or our practice what we might do of it. That experience that I learned studying anthropology still is very present in how I approach the beginning of a project. Yeah. I mean, how big is your practice? How many people do you employ? We're a small practice. We have 15 people, and almost all of them are actually architects. Yeah. But they all share an interest in altering existing buildings. Yep. So there's there's not very many people whose passion is to start on a greenfield site and build something new. Yep. But the interest is in taking something that exists, be it loved or unloved or be it historic or less historic, and find a new use for it and find a, an atmosphere that's going to be right as normally a, a house or a living space for people. You've taken a position, haven't you, within the architectural realm. The description on your website, I think, is interesting of your practice. You say... Jonathan Tucky Design has garnered an international reputation for working with existing buildings and structures. Our studio has become expert in combining contemporary design with layers of built heritage to explore the ways in which old and new can coexist and elevate one another. What is it about adapting existing buildings that so appeals to you? There's so many things, really. I suppose the first thing is an emotional thing. If you live in Europe, we have this built heritage that has evolved over 2,000 years, it feels that our job as curators of that built environment is to work with it and add to it rather than constantly see it as a blank sheet of paper to start again. So that's the sort of emotional enjoyment I get out of it, that the fact that the city is something that evolves rather than is going to be restarted. I think there's a potent environmental side to it which feels even more present as we kind of lurch forward in the future that the idea of destroying a building to build something new feels something that there's many reasons why one should avoid doing that. Mm. The kind of embodied carbon, the energy in the materials that you might be removing to then replace with something that's going to be equally energy heavy in replacing it. I think the final one is... I see it as a much more interesting challenge starting with a set of constraints that you then need to collaborate with or Mm. alter. I think too often architecture can be lazy in its solutions because it always strives that those things that are in its way just get removed and replaced with the architect's own solution. Mm. They frustrate me, but the things that get in the way normally for us are the things that produce some collage that we layer something new next door to. So I find that actually those constraints force us to be more creative in uh, the solutions that we come up with as a result of any particular situation that we're given. Do you consciously design in an eco-friendly way? Yes, we do. Or we're aware of the consequences of not doing it and we talk about those and discuss those with our clients. It wasn't why we set out to work with the existing buildings, mm. but the more we look into the energy embodied within them, it feels like a very good endorsement that those buildings, we like them because of their historical and emotional and contextual value. It feels tragic to see a school demolished nearby, which is all crumbled up into 
bricks and then scurried along in skips out and buried in landfill, yeah. where it could be really easily reappropriated into apartments or other such um, uses if it's not needed for its current use. And so I think it is an important opportunity to realise the environmental potential, the environmental storage that is within those buildings, the carbon storage that's in those buildings. Mm. And I think part of our job is to inspire people to show people that you can do beautiful things with those existing buildings. Quite often people come to us with a, a building that they really don't like. You know, they've found a great site with a great view, but for some reason um, it might be something as surface as just the materiality or the, the atmosphere, but they don't like it. And I think our job at the outset is to really understand what it is they don't like about it, not to try and persuade them to like it, but understand what they don't like about it and to work hard to address that with sensitive or careful or even radical alterations to the existing building. If that has an environmental benefit, that's an even more potent reason why we should be more persuasive in what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And then I think on top of that, once you've decided to work with the building rather than get rid of it, it's very easy now to then improve massively that building. Its thermal performance, its acoustic and uh, environmental performance can be dramatically improved without losing its character. So we've recently finished alterations to an old Cornish seafront cottage. It had beautiful, beautiful stone walls but was leaking like anything and was drafty and never going to be a warm and cosy place but mm. the client really really didn't want to lose the almost curvaceous beauty of these ancient walls by covering them all up in insulation but we ended up finding this amazing spray insulation that like a liquid sprayed onto the walls and then the plaster gets applied onto it so that the whole interior is still very very sculptural and curvaceous and organic and ancient rather than new so the building is cozy and warm and completely airtight and dry but equally it hasn't lost the the textural material warmth of the space so is that your approach in material do you generally try to utilize natural materials where you can oh definitely absolutely i think we're drawn to the the beauty of them when you first do them the, and how well they age over time and how um how much of the natural patina or weathering process comes gracefully to them. Yeah. So it would it would normally be the palette of materials that we would start with. So if you were presented with a site and a blank piece of paper, is that a project you would take on? No. No, you wouldn't. No, so no. you don't do new builds at all? No. That's fascinating. And I why, think why don't you? I think I, I probably am terrified of it. I don't know where I'd start, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I think start. I prefer the constraints of things that are there and that you have to find good reason to remove and adapt and alter. I think the formative part of an architectural training is normally on a conceptual level with a blank piece of paper. And mm. because I didn't do that, I have no experience in how I would go about it. So mm. I think it's, I'm sure it's come out as a result of the path that I took into architecture and design. Yeah, yeah. Well, that leads us on nicely to your first choice of living space. We asked you, as we always do in this podcast, to pick three living spaces, three homes from anywhere around the world. And your first choice is called La Fabrica. And I think it's probably the ultimate example of a, an industrial building being repurposed for residential use. So tell us about it. Why did you pick it? And just describe it to people that don't know it. It's on the outskirts of Barcelona. It's a 
an extraordinary large cement factory that was built, I believe, just after the Second World War. And it's made all in in situ concrete. It's a series of quite dramatic uh, sculptural volumes, principally cylinders, that look like large silos. On first impression, it's the last thing you think of as a domestic residence. Mm -hmm. And it was an abandoned building uh, in the 60s. And in the early 1970s, the Spanish architect Ricardo Bofill came across it and bought it and decided to make it the location for his architectural studio, his home, and a series of curated exhibition spaces, I believe, because it's really, it's very, very large. I chose it because because it really embodies the ambition and idea and potential of reuse. And as a building project that was started in the 70s, it feels like quite a, a trailblazer in setting out how you can go about the endeavor of change of use of an existing building. Cement Factory starts out as having no windows at all, as you would have expected, but his first task is to form openings within it and produces these very, very lovely curved, arched, vaulted windows that then cut in within the cylindrical silos. And the light from those curved windows produces almost church-like spaces. And the living space is powerful in its scale. It's very, very large. It's 10 metres in height but he uses some of the ancillary storage spaces as mezzanines that look into that. So there's a nice transfer of scale from a very, very large space to smaller nooks and snugs that feel right for domestic spaces. I think one of the challenges in any change of use project is you have to recognise that when the original architect built it, it was building it for a for a different reason. And so clearly this has no windows. It also has a scale that if you first walked into it might be beautiful and dramatic, but it's by no means intimate or domestic. Mm. And any change of use project needs to transfer that change of use so that you don't lose the beauty of the existing building, but you equally layer over the required scale change in this instance to make it a nice place to watch the TV or have dinner or yeah. do your homework. I think it's interesting. To, to my mind, a successful living environment is about contrast. I mean, you mentioned the idea of darkness there. I don't think a lot of designers actually think about darkness. But to my mind, the light and the brightness, the natural light of a successful living space particularly, only works well when it's been contrasted in some way as you approach that space. And I think the same is true of spaces as well. A huge, soaring, massive cathedral-like space really only works, I think, if maybe you've been constricted on your way through a corridor to enter it or, you know, there is a contrasting space next door to it which you can retreat to. It's that idea of prospect and refuge, isn't it? What's your take on that? I mean, what advice can you give people if they are, you know, carrying out their own project with an extension or they're adapting their own existing house? I think it's the greatest opportunity to use all the full range, I suppose. That feels like how we would start about a project, thinking both in terms of scale of space and amount of light, using the full range of dark through to bright, small through to vast, feels like our responsibility, but also our palette, like a painter's palette. And we talked about it quite a lot when we were designing your house together. It was important that the big expansive view of the garden, there was an opportunity to contrast that with a smaller snug-like space which would be likely better to watch the TV in or to to read a book in. 
I think when spaces are designed well and they don't need to be enormous properties in order to achieve it, you have spaces for different atmospheres or different moods or different times of the day or the year or the the season. Exactly. I, I think you need spaces to come together with friends and family that are resonant, noisy spaces where you can, you know, slurp wine and kids can go mad on tricycles. And then you need those spaces that you can retreat to and be quiet and spend some time on your own. I think that's the humans need those contrasts. And I think designers often forget that. You touched on on the project that that we did together. My former house was a 1960s house in North London. And I thought what was interesting was that in working on an extension, you you didn't do the classic thing of just a, a Mesian glazed box on the back of it, which is such an obvious thing to do. And I think probably most people would have done you actually took the opposite stance, which was the idea that the extension should be kind of like a ruin in the landscape that actually predated the 1960s house and related to the Georgian buildings alongside and the old um, Georgian wall that it sat up against. And I thought that was a really intriguing way of looking at it. And actually, the amount of glazing that you put in the design for the extension was relatively modest, wasn't it? But it was about channeling your views to the right parts of the garden and the landscape. Yes, the building that we started with, the existing building, had no shortage of beautiful views and Mm. no shortage of light. And so what we needed to understand was what the family needed in order to make that. Why are we making it bigger? And um, I think we quite quickly came to the conclusion that for all the beauty of the 1960s building, all the rooms were somewhat similar in proportion and aspect. So providing one space that was significantly bigger than that Mm. and significantly more solid feeling than that Mm. would extend the range of spaces available in in the property like like we were talking about the palette earlier had the building all been solid and heavy and small views at the beginning i'm sure our approach would have been the opposite and we would have gone for the more glazed experience so i think it's Perhaps that comes back to this way I think of a project right at the beginning is to try and carefully observe the current situation mm. and the current family or client's requirements mm. and to bring those two things together in a proposal that is actually genuinely needed for that place rather than yeah. a proposal that is needed for my ego or for the yeah. for the portfolio. So if you're working on an extension, particularly for a client, what, what do you ask them to give you? What, what do you need in terms of a brief? What's your starting point? We could produce a checklist, but just time talking to them is normally pretty invaluable. And I think those early conversations normally at the property, they might have a few images of things that they like, but What's normally more useful is the the, the conversation that, that accompanies those images as to why they might have been chosen. Yeah. Because it's quite easy to get distracted by the style of something. And actually, normally beneath that, people are more aware that they're looking for spaces that might be cosy or more intimate or more open or more expansive. Yeah. When we develop a project with people, we tend to build quite a lot of cardboard models, physical models like doll's houses of the buildings, big enough for people can get their heads in and and see the space. And if we've misunderstood the brief early on, those physical manifestations of what the building will be like, that conversation continues and we can then adapt and evolve the design along the way. Okay. Let's move on to your second choice of living space, which is a very unconventional one, which is why I like it. You've chosen 
Diocletian's Palace in Split in Croatia. Tell us about that one. It's a bit of an obscure living space, I suppose. I chose it because there's not many living spaces in the world that are 2,000 years old that you can, as a visitor now, go and hang out in and take ownership over, lie around, eat in, slumber in. Do you and quite, quite fancy your ideas, the Roman emperor and <laughs> people bringing you grapes? Yeah, not particularly, but it's. Um, I get quite fed up with um, walking around country houses in the UK where there's pieces of rope across a seat and yeah. that you can't actually sit down on. So it's a very nice opportunity to sit on the steps and not be ushered on by a member of staff. Yeah. So the building was built in around 300 AD and it was built by and for a, a Roman emperor. It's essentially it's his retirement residence and it's an enormous palace on the coast of what is now Croatia in the city that now is split. But at the time, it was just a palace on the coast. So I, I often think of it as a palace that was built for one. When he left and the Roman Empire fell, it effectively got appropriated as a city. People have now occupied the palace's apartments, offices, restaurants, cafes, and you can visit it and walk around it, and it's just a functioning part of the city with bits of vast Roman cornice next door to the table that you're eating your um, delicious Mediterranean food in. And the centre of it is this beautiful space called the Peristyle. I think of it as a living space. I think of it as the entrance to the emperor's living spaces, but it's now a civic space, the centre of the city of Split, where weddings happen. It's sometimes used for theatre. It's a very epic, very beautiful space that is still in incredible condition for its age, and it's the nice idea of uh, a space that was originally private has become fully public and very much part of the city. And yeah. A good model for how we think about quite a lot of the larger parts of our urban fabric that can and sometimes are accommodated and appropriated for contemporary uses. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about the actual bones of the thing for a moment, do you still think we've got a lot to learn from the ancients and classical architecture? Oh, absolutely, without question. I think it's it's always on our shoulder, really. I think that awareness, I think even what we talked about, small, medium and large spaces, I think in their terminology they would have just referred to that as proportion. Yeah. And um, I think the beauty of proportion is that if you adhere to that, it always works. We recently did a... The interiors for a hotel in Berlin where the proportion of the rooms were originally for industrial use. It was originally a factory, a cigarette factory in East Berlin. So the room proportions had unusually high ceilings for a domestic size space, somehow much more appropriate for a large machine than two people in a hotel room, and very, very big windows. So what we did in there was very much inspired by the classical idea of proportion, just dividing the room up into not quite thirds, but essentially dado, picture rail, and top proportion of the space, just to give this scale of the individual, the scale of the bed, the scale of the occupants of the space, something to relate to rather than feeling like they were in a factory. Yeah. So you don't do new builds, but if you did, presumably you wouldn't, though, design with a deliberately classical intent, would you? I mean, although one has to be aware of these classical references, do you think that modern design needs to be of its time? I, I can't imagine that we would design a building using the classical language of architecture, and I think it's impossible to not design a building of our time, built by builders today, it's built by materials that are only available today. But so, there's, a lot, there's a lot of bad pastiche going on, though. 
I don't have a problem with the word pastiche. It's seen as being a bad word and an accusation. But I think working in the style of is something that we are all doing in some way or other. And every, well, certainly every time you work on an existing building, an element of your work will be about repairing and rebuilding it. And so that will always be in the style of yep. the existing building. And an element of it is new. And so I think it's a contemporary slur, the word pastiche, yep. which I'm sure will, in a few years to come, be something that everyone will be wearing T-shirts saying, I am pastiche. <laughs> I look forward to that. Okay, something that very much isn't pastiche is your third choice, which is Sir John Soane's house in Lincoln's Inn Fields in London. Why have you chosen this? You've chosen a specific room within the building, haven't you? Yes, I've chosen the living room on the the first floor, the drawing room, I think it's called. It's a, it's a beautiful yellow painted space that overlooks Lincoln's Inn Fields. It's probably by no means the most eye-catching of the rooms. It's quieter and less extraordinary, certainly less obviously extraordinary than rooms on the ground floor, the, the picture gallery and the, the breakfast room in particular. I chose it because, to my mind, it's extraordinarily clever and sophisticated in how it achieves a degree of stability, which I think a, a room needs. When I say that, I mean it's a space that you don't feel you're constantly going to be moved on from like you might feel in an airport or something. So mm. it has a sort of, it has an anchor and a degree of stability about it, but it also has a series of other spaces that are supportive of it or, or on the side of it. So what I mean by it is essentially he creates a rectangular room with an oval end to it. So it's a quite a classical shaped room, but the the space between that room and the other rooms is quite thick, so the walls to get to it are quite thick. What that means is he puts other supporting spaces, ancillary spaces, in those spaces off it to provide a different function. So just to arrive in the room, you walk through quite a thickened threshold, gateway, mm. and that means that your journey into the room or your experience of arriving in the room is slightly heightened by a slightly lower doorway. Mm. It's a little bit darker. And as yeah. you arrive in it, you make one, two steps, and then you arrive in the beautiful yellow-painted living room. On the south side of it, facing the park, there's a belvedere, almost like a cloister that's been created that faces onto the park. So in some respects, what that does, it protects the room a little bit from the street. So it means that the activities of the room are a little bit more screened, a bit more private. Mm. But it means that if you're feeling a bit claustrophobic in the room and there's a conversation that you need to get away from or uh, a relative that you've, uh, that you've been talking to for too long, one step away and you're suddenly in the park in a space that both is still part of the room but have its different character. And he does this with a number of other things, some of which are drinks cupboards and supporting spaces. Mm. But to my mind, it's a very clever idea. He's not by no means the first person to do it. Palladio did it in his houses in Veneto in Italy. But it's a beautiful drawing room that exists in London that is a very clear way of demonstrating how you can provide a number of different atmospheres, even within one space. It yeah. goes back to our earlier conversation of dark, medium, small, large, big, light, bright yeah, spaces. Yeah. And just within that particular room, which is all of that range, and it shows that you can actually have that ambition even within a single space, let alone a whole house. I think that's fascinating. I think it's really interesting what you said as well about thinking about the user's arrival point, thinking about their journey through the building to get to that space. 
and actually some of the best living environments I've seen, they have those moments of surprise. For example, an extremely thick door that you have to open with a run-up or a very low door that, you know, is like a portal into John Malkovich's brain where you have to deliberately, you know, stoop to get through. I think they're those moments in architecture that are changes in scale and deliberately arrest your progress in some way that actually make it much more intriguing. Yeah, you're right. I think it's the house is like a piece of theatre in a way, a theatre that's got to be quite low volume because you've got to enjoy it every day without being exhausted, but it's got to entertain you through that journey from the street through to your bedroom and out again. And I think mm. it's often those transition spaces are overlooked. Yeah. I think it could be said that in certain era of modernist architecture, they get taken out of the plan entirely. Mm. So it just becomes this desire for open plan space mm. and that sequence of spaces that is so enjoyable and sophisticated and layered that we have in a lot of traditional architecture is lost. And I think the space is too immediate arriving into that wow space. And I think providing some foreplay into that and out of that is what really successful domestic architecture can do. Yeah, I, I think that good design mimics nature in some way, doesn't it? And we, we touched on that earlier, but there's this theory called the prospect refuge theory. And the thinking is that... In days gone by, man needed a place to hide from threats, but also, of course, be able to see someone coming. So they need prospect and refuge to be able to hide away. And we need that in our domestic environment as well. And I, I agree with you that actually a lot of modernist architecture is all about prospect, but there's really nowhere for those more meditative moments. But also this idea of moving through different thresholds, I think, brings us on to your own house in northwest London, which I've been lucky enough to visit. I mean, it is absolutely fantastic, I have to say. One of the things I love about it is that you have no concept of it being there on the street. It's just a portal in a pretty ordinary road, and you're compressed through an entryway, and then you arrive in this amazing ex-industrial space. Can you just tell us a little bit about that project and how you found it and what you did there? So it's an old light industrial shed, essentially, or a couple of sheds that we found around about 20, 25 years ago. And 20 years ago, we converted it into our house. You're right, it's on a arterial, anonymous street, typical London street. It's a road with buses on and there's a sort of busyness about it. And the only thing that announces something new on what just looks like a, a regular terraced frontage is a small black protruding portal that allows you to step up off the street. And for us, just that step was important to make sure that you were aware that you were entering something rather than just going to glide in like a forklift truck into the old industrial building. So mm. just something that delineated between the pavement and the street. Mm. Because it's a, a long, thin building which terminates in a courtyard garden which the new bedrooms and accommodation look around. There's a sequence of spaces that, by nature of the property, was always going to be quite a journey to get from the front door to that garden. And so we needed to create a number of filters or screens to stop it being one singular hangar mm. to give the rooms along the way their own character, but at the same time to prevent us from living in a long corridor. Mm. I do remember that the Madonna almost lived there, Jonathan. Do you remember that? 
Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. It's very uh, funny. We had an inquiry from her about it. The thing that I love about it is the layers of texture, the patina, the feeling that so many lives have already been through that building and you've left all those pock marks and you've left the markings on the wall and there's, there's writing on the walls. There's a, a handmade feeling to the materiality there. Why did you leave all that stuff? What, how did you approach that building? When the former owner, the light industrial metal workers, moved out, we were completely shocked at how beautiful the space was empty. We had bought it because we liked the plan shape, but it was so full of stuff we couldn't see the walls. So it became quite quickly clear that the walls had so much beauty in them before we even started. Yeah. And the whole project was on a very slow burn financially for lots of reasons. We had to do the whole thing very slowly. So we had six months where we used the building as a as a space for events, for photo shoots, for storage, um, but certainly not for doing any building work. And we would spend our weekends or our evening time just ripping off things, uncovering surfaces behind it. And we felt really excited by that. So it was through a slow discovery of that writing on the wall or the, the texture materials that we suddenly realized what a gem of materiality we had. Yeah. When we realized that we had all these beautiful brick walls that we wanted to keep, that you can't then hide anything in the walls. Yeah. So normally plasterboard and you put all your pipes and your electrics and things like that behind it. So that forced us down a route thinking all the pipes will now need to be exposed and that became this journey of how can we design our taps and our pipe work and our lighting in a way that's layers on top of those walls and it's now it's a whole language of beautifully curved bits of copper that drop water from a roof down into the kitchen basin or drop water from one area into the bath mm. so the discovery of something along the way the seeing the history of the building and realizing we wanted to see it forced us or directed us in a design direction that we would have never have come up with had we not had those constraints yeah yeah there was a certain amount of revealing what was there but clearly to make the new bedrooms or the new stories above we had to build new yeah and we wanted to find a material palette that complemented the uh, the existing timbers so the existing timber ceiling of the kitchen has this dark would have been softwood in 1890 but is now very very dark just from from time and probably from the soot of the factory but the proportions of the wood and the proportions of the panels in between felt right. So all we really did for the for the new materials was take exactly the same proportions and make them new. Mm. And it creates quite a nice dialogue between these very old materials and the new ones that sit alongside them. Yeah. And you've got kids, haven't you? How well does it work as a family home? Well, it was 20 years ago when we did it, and um, they're, they're still with us, so... Um, <laughs> It's been a delight, actually. We've evolved the house in the 20 years that we've been living there together. So bedrooms have moved around as their needs for individual spaces have evolved as they've grown up. What was really interesting about it as a family home was right from the outset, because it was designed when my daughters were two and zero, was that I, I was very much of the opinion that I was heading into the unknown of what family life was going to be mm. and I didn't want to design something that was going to be too prescriptive mm. so the only analogy that I could think of in the time was to try and design a framework right. in which small medium and large spaces existed and that those spaces could 
be adapted as we as a family evolved and the children grew up. And I think that the 20 years that we've been there has proved that 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 simple idea did actually work. Living rooms that were more open plan and now need to be a little bit more cellular so we do have some respite from one another. That framework has been able to be opened and closed as our needs adapt and have evolved. Do you think that there is a reduced anxiety in some ways of using existing fabric like that because in a way when you've got a family home and you've got kids kind of going mad inside there there is a comfort in the fact that something's been there for a couple of hundred years they can sort of run amok and that's okay I don't see it quite like that but what I do see it is you feel more at ease occupying it or you feel more able to to sort of settle in I could imagine it would be quite overwhelming to arrive in a space that is you're the first person in it ever and somehow you're kind of making history in it. It's mm. quite nice feeling that the layers of occupants that have been in those spaces and you're just part of a, a continuum. Yeah. So I mean, my daughters have written on the walls without me realising there's quite a lot of low-level signatures on the walls and I realised that actually, given that the metal workers before had written all over the walls, it was difficult for me to castigate them for doing something that was only in the DNA of the building. Well, it's going to be the Roman inscriptions of the future, aren't they? Someone's going to uncover them at some point. (laughs) And you call it a collage house, don't you? Mm. Why is it called that? I think it's because it embodied that idea of when you make a collage, you're normally layering objects upon one another, and it felt like the presence of the existing building and the existing use of that site, existing use of that property... And our layering over the top of it was like a collage, so that was our naming reason. So what does home mean to you, Jonathan? Is home a place of refuge for you? Is it a place where you also work? Is it a multifunctional space? What defines the idea of home for you? What's the main use that you have for it? Home is definitely a sanctuary and definitely a place that is an important refuge for two of us, four of us, all, all of us, but equally... On last Friday, it was a it was a party space, but the, the weekend after the clear up, it was back to being a very much domestic space. So, I think because it has one large room in it and a sequence of rooms off it that support it, we enjoy the possibilities that that gives us in order to use it for other things. Yeah, but only comfort in the knowledge that it can support the stability of the family yeah. existence quite quickly afterwards. And does it work well for one person if you're there on your own? Yeah, very well. It's a really lovely space to get up at five in the morning and watch the sun rise. The main space is top lit with a roof light, but also looks out to the garden. It gets filled with that dawn blue light. Mm. It's a it's a very calm space to be on your own, I suppose. Yeah. Despite its proximity to a busy street, it's sheltered enough back from the street to be completely silent. Yeah. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming to see me. I've really enjoyed it. And see you soon. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This episode was produced by Caroline Hughes and the executive producer was Kate Taylor. So that you don't miss an episode, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and we would love you to rate and review to help other people find us too. Head over to our website, themodernhouse.com, where you'll find more information about the homes we talked about today. We recorded this episode at Phoenix Court in Summerstown next to King's Cross Station. A very big thank you to Robin Klein for letting us use the recording studio there. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.